Jewish audio on Kabbalah.org. Good morning. Welcome. The Torah portion for today, Devorim Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 8. Again, a collection of short sections of various laws segueing from one law to the other. Now the Torah tells us about Edom. Edom is Esav, the Romans. Esav, Edom, does not have a wonderful history with the Jewish people. Nevertheless, Esav is Yaakov's brother. So he says here in verse 8, Lo tisaev Adomi, don't despise, don't abhor an Edomite, because he's your brother. Even though, as Rashi says, he deserves to be hated, but still, he's your brother. Don't abhor or despise an Egyptian, even though they also deserve to be hated. Because you were a stranger or a guest in his country, and Specifically, this refers to during the famine when the entire family of Yaakov came to Egypt and they were welcomed and treated wonderfully and fed and sustained. Unfortunately, after that, it turned into slavery. But hey, who can get particular? So don't completely despise the Egyptians. There's the uh, adorable story which I like to tell of the old Jewish fellow who heard about a cruise, and it was an amazing price. It was only uh, $19.99 for a 10-day cruise. You can't believe it. So he signs up, and as soon as he gets on the boat, they tie him up and put him in the galley and put oars in his hand, and they say, okay, you've got to start rowing. And for the next uh, two weeks, he had to together with everybody else in the galley, moved the oars and rowed the boat. And, and this went on, and it was terrible. And in case they stopped, uh, there was a guy with a whip, and he started whipping them. It was a terrible experience. Finally, the two weeks are over. They unlock the handcuffs, and they're walking off. And he turns to the fellow next to him, and he says, Tell me, do you know, how much should we tip the whipper? So uh, he says, in Egypt, you have to know how much you tip the whipper. Don't totally hate the Edomite. Even though he deserves to be hated. When you came out of Egypt, Aesop, the Edomites, greeted you with a sword. You asked for a right of way and they came out with guns. Even though they threw your baby boys into the river. Why shouldn't you hate them? Matam, what is the reason? Because at the time of need, they welcomed you and offered you hospitality. Therefore, verse 9, Bonim, the children that will be born to them. In the third generation, they may enter into the congregation of Hashem and marry Jews. Other nations may marry Jews as soon as they convert. 
Halamadita, this teaches us, Shahamahti la Adam, that one who causes a person to commit a sin, spiritual, koshale is more difficult on him, minaherge, than someone who kills him. Shahaherge, because when one kills someone, herge be he terminates his life in this world, but not in the world to come. But if someone causes someone to sin, he causes him to lose this world and the world to come. Therefore, Edom, the Edomites, who met you with a sword, was not totally abhorred. So also, or Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, who drowned the Jewish babies in the sea, were not totally abhorred. But the Ammonites and Moabites who caused them to sin, they were, Hashem commanded us to abhor them because they led the Jewish people into sin. And we know the story in the desert. Towards the end of the 40 years in the desert, it was the Midianites and the Moabites who brought the Jewish people to a very low point with the whole story of Shittim and Zimri and so on. Verse 10. When you will go out as a camp, referring to an army, against your enemy, when the Jewish people go as an army to fight the enemy, they need an extra dose of holiness. We know even in today's world, and especially in today's world, the difficulties of life in the army. We know what goes on. We know the decadence, the craziness. It's a rough situation. Being in the army away from civilization, away from family, is not a very easy thing. So the question is how you deal with those pressures. There are various ways of dealing with those pressures. There was a situation where the Rebbe was once visited by some senior army officers of the Sahal of the Israeli Defense Force. And the Rebbe talked to them about the importance of tefillin in the army, of Torah classes, of, of uh, morale-boosting uh, sessions to bring more spirituality to the army. And they said, you know what, we have entertainment, we have movies, we have uh, Hollywood people that come. And the Rebbe said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> In the army, you need an extra dose of spirituality because that is where things tend to get out of hand and out of control. So he says here, this is the theme in this section, that when you go out as a camp against your enemy, you have to have an extra dose of caution. You must keep yourself guarded from any bad stuff. Watch out for the bad stuff. Because the Satan, referring to Satan in particular, and the negative energies in general, bring charges against people when people are in danger. The army is a dangerous place. So therefore we have to be more meticulous in our spiritual standing 
not certainly not less meticulous. Says the Balaturim on verse 10, Vinishmarta, we should be careful. The word Vinishmarta has the numerical value of Minshvichas Domim, killing. Yes, we have to kill in, an, in, in war, but we have to be careful and make sure that life does not become cheap and we don't just kill because it's an army and that's what we do, which is one of the problems in the army. Another numerical value, the word Vinishmarta, Kilelas Hashem, blasphemy. Another interpretation, not to gaze at women. Immorality. All of these things are items in which we require an extra dose of caution in military life. Now the Balaturim also says, why does the verse, the end of verse 10, say Mikhail Dovoro? For the same price it could have said, Minishmarta, Mikhail Ro. What do we learn from the word Dovor? The word Dovor means a word. Also, be careful, don't utter bad words. Watch your language. Don't develop a soldier's language. Don't talk like you're in the army. A Jew should continue to talk in a God-fearing manner. This is, in general, a lesson to us about nivul peh, not to sully our mouths with inappropriate talk. Eleven, ki ish. If there will be a man, who will have an impure event take place at night where he'll see semen, then the halacha is that when that happens, before a Jew enters the Temple Mount, before a Jew enters the Beis HaMikdash, he has to immerse in the mikveh, and when the sun sets, he becomes pure, and he can ascend up the Temple Mount and go into the Holy Temple. So the he has to go outside of the camp, referring to the Temple Mount. He can't come into the camp of the Temple Mount. Rashi The same law is if the occurrence happens during the day. But usually a nocturnal event will happen at night. This is a positive mitzvah, that when it happens, he has to leave the area of the Beis Amigdash and the Temple Mount or the Mishkan and the Levites' camp during the time when the Mishkan was in the desert. This is a negative commandment, so we have both a positive and negative commandment here. Which camp are we talking about? We also the In the desert, we talk about the Levite camp. The Koshkin Lamachtashkina, certainly the camp of Hashem, the Mishkan area. Later in Jerusalem, we talk about the Holy Temple and the Temple Mount, which is why there were mikvahs all around the Temple Mount, so that before a Jew goes onto the Temple Mount, he can immerse in a mikvah. Twelve, Ahayalifnes Erev. It comes towards evening. Yilchatz b'amayim, he has to immerse in water, meaning he has to immerse in a mikvah. And once the sun sets, he may enter into the camp. This is one of those many situations which is called a tevilas ha'arev shemesh. The immersion can take place any time during the day. 
But it doesn't kick in until sunset. Until it gets dark. That's the very beginning of the Mishnah and Talmud. May Amosai, the tractate Brochus begins, May Amosai, Kairin es Shema Ba'arvin. What time do we begin reading the nighttime Shema? So let him just say seven o'clock. Let him say when, when the stars come out. He says, no. From the time that the Kohen can go eat Truma. What, what, what does that mean? Why can't the Kohen go to eat Truma anytime? Because he was impure and he went to a mikvah and he has to wait for the sun to completely set. That's when we can begin to recite the Shema. So that is the idea of Tvilas Harib Shemesh, of immersion, which doesn't really kick in completely until dark. Rashi, as close as possible to the complete sunset, he shall immerse himself. But it's not complete. It's not a done deal until the sun completely sets. Which is not sunset, it's later than sunset. Now the next mitzvah of holiness, v'yod and there shall be a station, a place outside of the camp. See, today we live in a luxury world. Everyone has a bathroom in their house. And if you only have one bathroom, you're poverty stricken. You need three and a half baths, eight and a half baths. Back then, only very, very, very rich people had bathrooms, and that's a couple hundred years ago. But a couple thousand years ago, you went to the outhouse. So, what he says is that a person can't just walk outside into the street and use the bathroom, so to speak. There has to be a designated, modest, private place. The Yatsasa, Shomachutz, and that's where you go out to what is appropriately called the outhouse. Because it's out. As the Targum says, a prepared place. In the desert, it was outside the pillar of cloud, which Hashem hovered over the camp of Israel. It was outside the camp. 14, the Yosed, and a shovel or a paddle. You shall have for yourself Allah Zeynecha amongst your weapons, that in addition to all the other weapons you need, you need a shovel. Because it will be as you sit outside and you do what you have to do. You use the shovel, you dig, you go back, and you cover that which you did. That is basic sanitary law, modesty law, and that's part of the Torah. It's important to have all kinds of weapons. But you also need this outhouse paddle. It's just as important as a weapon of war. The Balaturim takes this a step further and says that it's juxtaposed to watch out what you speak with what Part of our body, do we take in that which people speak? Our ears. The word azenecha also means ozen, an ear. 
Make sure you have a paddle on your ear. When stuff is being said that you don't want to hear, take your finger and cover your ear. Or, if people are engaging in gossip and in trash, walk outside. Don't sit down there and say, it wasn't my fault. We are responsible for what we hear. The Medrash says that the word viyosed refers to the patriarchs because the word viyosed has the numerical value of vihoves and the patriarchs. That we have to know where we come from. We have to know who our father and who our grandfather was. This is maybe reminiscent of Yosef. Yosef was able to control himself and not sin with Potiphar's wife because he saw the image of his father. So when you're hearing stuff that you shouldn't be hearing, you should think of the image of the patriarchs. Also, says the Balaturim, has a numerical value of midos, attributes that we have to develop, divine attributes. What is our greatest weapon? The 13 attributes of mercy. We say it every day in davening. Hashem, Hashem, Kerachem, Bechanun, Midos. The Yud Gimel Midos, that is the numerical value of the words, V'yosei Tielecho al Azeinecho. Those are some of the Balaturims today. Why is it that we have to be so careful? Why is it that we have to be so cautious? Because a Jew has to know that God, your God, is walking with you in the midst of your dwelling, of your camp. He's there to save you. And to deliver your enemies before you. Therefore, in order to welcome God, your camp, your dwelling place must be holy. What does it mean to be holy? First and foremost, that an unseemly thing should not be visible amongst you, so that Hashem will, God forbid, turn away from you. Hashem will not see inappropriate. Next verse, next halacha, leisazgir eved el adeno. Do not return a runaway slave to his master. Asher who will escape to you, from his master. What is this talking about? Who's the slave and who's the master and who are you? Rashi. The first interpretation Rashi brings down is kitargumay. Understand this as the Targum says. We're talking about a Jewish slave who was purchased for whatever reason by non-Jews, taken out of Israel, and he runs away to you, and he says, save me. You have to save this Jewish slave from his non-Jewish owners. That's one interpretation. Dabarachar, a second meaning, another interpretation discussed, in the Talmud tractate Gitin, Afilo Ebed Knani Shal Yisrael, even a Canaanite slave belonging to a Jew, Sheborach Michutzlar Es Yisrael, who ran away from the diaspora and ran into Israel 
and said, I want you to save me, you have to save him as well, so that Israel should be a place where a slave can find liberty. And assistance. 17, Imcha with you, Yeshe Bikirbacha, he shall dwell amongst you, Bamokam Asherifchar, anywhere he wants to, Biachat Sharecha in any one of your cities. Gates means cities, Batevle, wherever it looks good to him. Lei Keinenu, don't oppress him just because he's a slave. Don't take advantage of him. Just be hospitable to him. So that is the halacha of the slave. 18, next halacha, holiness. We've learned earlier that the word kadosh means segregated. The word kadosh means segregated in a good way. We say that God is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holiness is called kedusha. Marriage is called kidushin. The word kadosh is also used for designated and segregated for unholy actions, for unholy objects. A harlot in the Torah is called a Kedesha. Because the word Kodosh means set apart, designated, segregated. For what? Could be for holy things, could be for unholy things. So therefore, he says now in verse 18, Lysia Kedesha, there shall not be a Kedesha, a harlot, a prostitute amongst Jewish daughters which means a Jewish girl should not work as a prostitute. Chas v'sholem. Nor shall there be male prostitutes amongst the sons of Israel. Rashi, Lysia, Kedesha. What does the word Kedesha mean grammatically? Mofkeres, Mikudeshes, Umazumenes, Liznus. Someone who is available, designated, prepared for harlotry, meaning a harlot. For a male harlot, the Unklus Tirgum, Unklus gives another interpretation. Not only does this apply to harlotry, but that a Jewish girl should not marry a slave. Because a slave is not 100% Jew. It's only when the slave is liberated that the slave becomes 100% Jew and can marry a Jewish girl. Sha'af zoom of keres lebilis nusi. This would also be harlotry. Me'achashen kedushin tapes in Because there can't be a marriage between a Jew and a slave. Sha'arei hukshu lachamer. Because the Torah legally compares the slave who is owned to an animal that's owned. You reside here with the animal. Same thing applies that a male Jew should not marry a slave woman. That he also enters into an act of prostitution, harlotry, because of her. Because the intimacy that will exist between them. Bilaznus will be intimacy of harlotry. Shein Kedushin tapes in Leibah because marriage does not take hold between a slave and a Jew. I just want to take a moment to point out in a time when at least, thank God, and overtly there are no slaves, even though unfortunately there's still 
a world of slavery out there, but you have to read between the lines to understand that. But Baruch Hashem, thank God, uh, at least in the open, we're, we're way past the world of slavery. And, and that's a good thing. But in the time when everything functioned, the entire economy functioned with slavery many, many thousands of years ago, and certainly up to hundreds of years ago, the Torah was revolutionary in its teachings of being kind and sensitive and delicate with slaves. And when a non-Jewish slave became part of the Jewish community in Israel, first of all, the slave became Jewish, still allowed to perform his duties. The master was encouraged to liberate him. When he became liberated, he became 100% Jewish and was able to become part of the community in which he lived. And in general, the sensitivity that Jewish law gives to how a slave should be treated, revolutionary relative to the times. There are stories in the Talmud of a situation where there were nine men in shul. They were looking for a tenth man. One of the people in shul said, okay, and he freed his slave. And, and he, they said, let's say Ashrei. So they had a minion. So the, the, the slaves were treated in, in an amazing way, even during a time when slavery was universal. Still, there are laws as to who can marry who, who cannot marry who, and until a slave is liberated, the slave does not become a 100% Jew. Verse 19, along the lines of holiness and immorality, one shall, you shall not bring the hire of a harlot, which means that somebody hired a harlot, gave her a sheep for her services, and then this sheep ends up as a sacrifice in the Beis Hamikdash. That doesn't work. That's called Esnan Zona, the hire of harlotry. Omechir Kelev. Also, don't sell your dog and buy a sheep and bring that sheep as a sacrifice. Because a dog is an unholy animal. Beis Hashem Alekecha to the house of Hashem your God. Lechol neder for any vow. Kitayabas Hashem gam Alekecha gam Because both of these acts, to bring the sheep which was traded for harlotry, to bring the sheep that was traded for a dog, are unholy and considered abominable to Hashem, not kosher. So that you can't bring any monies to Hashem. The money has to have a source of at least not unholiness. Rashi, Esnan Zaina, Nasla Kleb Esnana, he gave her a lamb for her hire, Posulakrova, the lamb becomes unfit permanently forever to be offered as a sacrifice. Omechir Kelev, Hechlif said the Kelev. He exchanged a lamb for a dog, Gamshneim, Lerabishinuyehem, even in their changed forms, Kigenchitim Asam Selas, wheat which was made into flour. That flour, if it was one of these exchanges, is also inappropriate. Okay, next section. Here we come once again to the laws forbidding charging and paying interest. And let me once again give the introduction that I always give here, which I was privileged to hear from my father of blessed memory. Why does the Torah say that a Jew may and perhaps even should 
charge and pay interest when it comes to his dealings with non-Jews and should not charge and pay interest to Jews. It sounds racist. It sounds not kosher. And again, I was privileged to hear a very lengthy explanation from my father of blessed memory in the approach to this, and it's underscored in the language of the verse. And that is that it's normal, everyday life for people's money to make money. Your money has to make money. There are various ways of making money. Sometimes your body makes money if you're a carpenter or a dentist or a doctor or you play the flute. Your body makes money. Sometimes your money makes money. If you're a businessman, you're an investor, you run a bank. For people's money not to make money is not a normal condition. And therefore, it's correct to make money with your money. So when somebody says, let me use your money, I need to make money with my money. It's normal. It's correct. You want to use my money? You got to pay for it. Money doesn't grow on trees. Except when it comes to your brother. Because it's not correct to charge interest to your own brother. It's not correct to charge interest to your own blood. A Jew, the chidush here is, the revolutionary contribution here is, is that every Jew is a brother. So it's inappropriate to charge or pay interest from or to a fellow Jew because he's your brother. Whereas the normal condition of the world to a non-brother, what's the word for brother in Hebrew? Ach, achicha. What's the word for non-brother? Nochri, stranger. So therefore, it is normal that you charge interest to strangers. You pay interest to strangers, not to brothers. And that's what we're about to learn here. Verse 20. Don't lend in, with interest to your brother. Neshech kesef, whether it's money, neshech eichel, or it's food. I guess a, a grocery extends a credit and then charges. You know, 3% a month. Neshech koldover asher yishech. The interest of anything that is lent, and the word neshech means bite. Because as we know, Interest bites. Today we live in a world of high credit card interest. You know, interest rates are at an all-time low, but people are paying 25% on their credit cards. This is an admonition to the borrower. They should not give interest to the lender. There's an admonition to the lender. Don't lend him money. With interest. That is, verse 20, as he says in the beginning, La'achicha, to your brother. But la'nochri, to the stranger, to your non-brother, Sashich, you may lend and borrow with interest. La'achicha, but to your brother, Sashich. It's not nice. Again, the revolutionary contribution here is, is that every Jew is a brother. Laman in order that. God, your God, shall bless you. 
Bechel mishlach yodecho, and everything you extend your hands to. Alo adome in the land, where you're coming to inherit. So be considerate to your fellow Jews and don't choke them with interest. But not to your brother. So if somebody transgresses this mitzvah, he transgresses two positive, two negative commandments and one positive commandment. The final halacha here is, when you will make a vow to God your God, you say, I'm going to bring a sacrifice to Hashem, and you're living in Haifa and the Beis Hamikdash is in Jerusalem. Doesn't mean you have to get into your car tomorrow morning or into your wagon and uh, deliver the sacrifice tomorrow morning. You could do it next week, next month. But how much can you procrastinate? Don't pay it too late. It's got to be in a timely way. Sooner or later, excuse me, Hashem will demand it from you, and it will be considered a sin. So what's too late? Rashi brings down from the tractate Rosh Hashanah, you have three festivals. The three major festivals are Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkos, where whatever date you are in the calendar, three festivals, that's the cutoff. We learned it from Mikra. So you have to pay the pledge before three festivals go by. What if you'll say, hey, in that case, I ain't making any vows. I'm not going to pledge any animals for sacrifices. That's okay. You won't sin. I mean, it's a good thing to make vows, but if you won't, you won't. What is important is that you have to keep your word. That which comes forth from your mouth, you must observe and do. As you promised, as you vowed to God your God, a free will offering, which you verbalized with your mouth. This adds a positive commandment to the negative commandment. And this again applies to the timely payment of vows and promises. What is the difference between a neder and a nedova? One is, I make a vow to bring this sheep as a sacrifice. The other is, I make a vow to bring a sheep as a sacrifice. What's the difference? The difference is, if you say this sheep, if on the way this sheep dies, the sacrifice died. If you say a sheep, and on the way the sheep dies, you have to go bring another sheep. End of Chumash portion.